All right, well, uh, gosh, uh, we'll go ahead and start. Um, we are back at it with our Thursday night uh, Bible study. I'm, I, I sound loud. Could you turn me down, Ashana, just a little bit? Thank you. That's, that's good right there. Um, read the readings, uh, and let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you very much for this evening and for the day that you have provided for us, Lord, as, we, as this day draws to a close. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be ever close to us and ever near us. Uh, Lord, keep the fiery arrows of the evil one at bay. Um, and Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins that we have through your Son, Jesus, who shed his blood on the cross and rose again three days later, thereby defeating sin, death, and the power of Satan. Uh, that power, Lord, that, that we are baptized into. Uh, and so, Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray for our time here uh, and that you would open our hearts and our minds. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, the lessons tonight, the three lessons tonight, are different than what is in the lectionary. What we're doing is, a couple of weeks ago, we're, we're doing the lessons that were from, I believe, two weeks ago. And the reason for that is because two weeks ago we had VBS Sunday, and um, we did, I had picked out different lessons that corresponded with what the kids learned during VBS, and that was kind of the theme for that particular Sunday. And then the next Sunday, last Sunday, uh, was a um, summary of what the youth learned at their Higher Things conference that we went to in Lawrence. And so the reason why I went back to a couple of weeks ago, I don't normally um, do that, but the uh, gospel lesson is the feeding of the 5,000, and it was a um, text that I really wanted to preach on. And so the lessons are from two weeks ago, and uh, I'll make sure that I announce those as we go along here. So the Old Testament is Jeremiah 23, 1 through 6. Jeremiah 23, 1 through 6. Prophet Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet because, well, he wept um, uh, when, at various times when he was giving his prophecies to the people because the people were not listening. And he was becoming very frustrated w with them. And, um, and so this is one of those prophecies beginning in chapter 23. Verse 1, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. And then verse 5 and 6, really the payoff. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. And so 
what we have in verse 1, woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. The shepherds that Jeremiah, that God through Jeremiah is referring to are the kings and the leaders of Israel that, ironically enough, that the Israelites had asked for, had, had asked God for, and these leaders are failing. They are failing in their idolatry, not only for themselves as individuals, but also leading the people towards idolatry. And we really get a great look and a great idea of what is happening through the image that God, through Jeremiah, uses, that of, of, that of, of shepherds and, and sheep. And we'll see coming in, in verses 5 and, and 6 that the prophet is really pointing to the, the great shepherd, the good shepherd. Um, so that's, that, that's kind of what is happening here. What jumps uh, off the page at you in these six verses? Anything that, you, that we read that you kind of wondered about or questioned about or had a comment about? He gets very, Jeremiah gets very specific in verse 2. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them. Remember the good shepherd, Jesus refers to himself as that good shepherd, but then he gives sort of qualifications for that. I, my sheep know my voice, right? And no one can snatch them out of my, out of my hand. Um, he gives the he gives the example too of of a bad shepherd uh, when the wolf comes um, the shepherd basically runs away um, but with the good shepherd Jesus uh, we we need not fear those wolves and so we see the opposite of what is happening here of what is happening here with the leaders that God has granted to them after their requests. They are not, they have scattered them. They've driven them away from God, from their first love, and they have not bestowed care on them. Uh, What do you think is the kind of care that God is referring to there? What kind of, of care? Spiritual care, faithfulness. Good, yeah. Yeah, they're not keeping the first com- commandment, the first and the most important one. And that's what, that's what shepherds do. That's what pastors, pastors do. Their most important responsibility is to make sure that their sheep are uh, in Christ and in the Spirit, keeping the first commandment first. And if that's not happening, then the result of what happens is what you see there in verse 2. The flock scatters, they get driven away, and the care that God wants for them no longer happens. So then he gives these proclamations against these, against these false shepherds, these ones who were not doing the job that God had entrusted to them. And then in verse 5, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, 
a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Of course, that righteous branch is Christ. And as we've mentioned before, no matter what text that you're reading, whether it's the Old Testament or the New, or any book there, therein, every text that you read points to Christ. The entire scriptures do that. And so we, we see it very, very clearly here. A king who will reign <clears throat> wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Now, we're going to find out in a little bit when we get to the gospel lesson towards the end of that text, I believe it's verses 13 and 14, that the people acknowledge Christ, acknowledge Jesus to be a prophet, and they're right about that, but the kind of prophet they get woefully wrong. And you find out through John's commentary that Jesus knows that, and we'll, we'll, we'll find out what, what his reaction is. Uh, verse 6, in, in his days, Jesus' days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness, a very fitting name because of Christ's work on the cross, giving to us his perfect righteousness. The, the, the non-guiltiness, the perfection, really, of Christ given to us so that we might enter heaven. Okay. Um, good. Any comments or questions on Jeremiah? <clears throat> Good. Think of the Reformation and how God voices Good. Good. Yeah, even though the flock might be might be scattered, the Good Shepherd will uh, not only regather them, uh, but will, as a, as it says in Psalm twenty three, will lead them to um, to quiet pastures, right? Um, to safe pastures. Good. Uh, okay, let's go to the epistle. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Uh, well, somebody read that, please. Uh, it's, it's a bit, not really long, but kind of long. Uh, go ahead and read that and read it as much as you would like. Therefore, remember that one time the Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, what is called the circumcision, which is made with the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of the cross. No hope without God in the world. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, that made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, dividing all hostility, abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And in this, 
one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay, lots going on in that text. If you, if you go back to the beginning in verse 11, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, uh, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. So what Paul is, is reminding the Ephesians of is that remember that before Jesus and before the gospel that I preached to you about him, you were, these, you were the ones who were, as he refers to in 17, who were far away. And before Christ, the covenant was that God's people, that the um, uh, boys, that the men of God's people had to be circumcised. And once that happened, then they were included in God's, um, gosh, I mean, they were included in God's nation, in his family, counted among his people. And then the generations that followed were to do the same thing. And so before Christ, the only ones who were saved were literally the Jewish people. Uh, uh, and um, those who, uh, who were descendants of the Israelites, okay? Remember at that time that you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the, of the promise. But now, 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through what? What now has taken the place of circumcision in the covenant? Yeah, uh, have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. Okay? It is that blood that is now the new covenant. Okay? For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the bear, the dividing wall of hostility. He refers to this same kind of theme elsewhere in, in, in his letters where he talks about um, there is no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. The dividing wall of, of hostility is no longer there because of Christ and because of what he has done for his people. Um, 17, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away. Re remember a couple of times, especially with the disciples after his resurrection, do you remember the very first word that Jesus speaks to his disciples? Peace. Peace be with you. Peace to you. And it is that peace that, that he came and preached to all of the people. What kind of a peace is he referring to specifically? Because that's important. Is it the kind of, of peace that you wish someone um, would, would have, perhaps like a mental state? They would have a, a peaceful mind and a, a peaceful heart? Or is it something different? 
I'll give you a hint. It's something different. <laughs> and that peace that Paul is referring to here goes right back to the previous verses. The dividing wall of hostility that was between the people and God has been shattered. And because of that, Jesus preached that peace, the peace that God is now at peace with his people, and the people are now at peace with God. And uh, it's neat how the Gospels kind of flesh this theme out, too, where Jesus talks about how there are other sheep that are not of this fold, there are other sheep not of this sheep pen. Uh, I have been called to summon them, and I have, have been called to save them as well. And it's interesting, if you sort of put this in the context and in the light of Jeremiah, um, if we go back to that, if you can put your finger there and go back to Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 6. Uh, verses 5 and 6 again, the days are coming when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely, and in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Well, because of Jesus, we are now all Judah. We are now all Israel. And this is the point that Paul is making, and he's not finished there. He's not just finished at verse uh, 17 and 18, but he goes on. So consequently, because of all of this, because the dividing wall of hostility has been broken, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, people that don't belong, right? But fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's um, uh, kind of a neat, even though um, uh, Paul probably didn't have it in mind at at this time, but that's a neat allusion to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Apostles' Creed is not called the Apostles' Creed because the Apostles wrote it, but rather it's a summary of what they taught. The foundation of the Apostles and the Prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. It's the cornerstone of any building. Um, If you look, our school has a great one. It's very easy to see. That cornerstone is the building, is is that point in the building by which everything is sort of joined together at? Well, Jesus himself is that chief cornerstone. So whether you are, um, uh, well, to use Paul's language elsewhere, whether you are um, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, no matter who you are, Jesus has come, shed his blood for you, and you are now by that covenant, the shed blood of Jesus, you are now in his family. Uh, you are no longer far away. You have been brought near. Um, And the last verse, verse 22, and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It, It reminds of last year, of our school's theme verse from last year, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of our Lord Jesus. You are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Remember, too, we've talked about this before, but um, that the moment that the curtain of the temple was torn in two after Jesus' death, at that moment, it was God 
saying in a very loud and a very um, bold fashion that I don't live in the, in the temple anymore. I live inside of my people. The dwelling place of God is now with men. Jesus' name, uh, Emmanuel, means God with us. So it's really neat how Paul is um, taking several themes, not only from, from, uh, from what has been re- revealed to him by Christ, but we see it too in his other letters. Um, that this idea that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken. We have peace with God, specifically that peace that God is at peace with us. And I've said this before, but it, it cannot be understated how much that God hates sin. And we see that because he sent his own son to be crucified for that sin. Um, and so it, it, Ephesians, this, this text, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, was just a really, really neat part of, of Paul's letters. Any thoughts or questions on that after we kind of went through it a, a little bit? There was a lot to unpack there, um, but any thoughts or questions on that? All right. Uh, let's go to the gospel then. This will also be, as I mentioned, the sermon text. John 6. 1 through 14, the feeding of the 5,000. Lots to unpack there as well. John 6, 1 through 14. John 6, 1 through 14. Interestingly, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the rare times in the Gospels where every single Gospel has the, this account. Not every Gospel, as we know, records everything the, the exact same way, but that's because there were four different people who were giving an account of the life of Jesus as they saw it. But in their wisdom, given by the Spirit, this feeding of the 5,000 is in every single gospel. And if we had uh, a little bit more time, it would be neat to sort of compare and contrast those four accounts, but uh, we're not going to be able to do that here tonight. But I encourage you to do that on your your own, though. So John 6, 1 through 14. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. Now that distance, as I found out, is a distance of about four miles. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. That verse is important because it's going to come up in a little bit different light a little bit later. They followed him, why? Because they saw the miraculous signs that he had performed. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples The Jewish Passover feast was near. That's also an important tidbit. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he had already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 
eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to even have a bite. And then John, very, uh, very craftily, in verse 8, compares Philip's answer to that of a different disciple, Andrew. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke of, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down. Kind of reminds a little bit of Psalm 23. About 5,000 of them. Now keep in mind, too, that this was just at the gospel writers only record the men. There were women and children there, too, and the estimates are that if you added the women and the children to the 5,000, there was probably uh, around seven to 8,000 people who were there. And they all were hungry, and they all wanted something to eat, and they see Jesus, and so they go to him thinking that he's going to give them what they are looking for. Uh, verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Okay, so lots to unpack there with this gospel. Let's first go to verse 2. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. John, one of John's themes throughout his entire gospel is these signs of Jesus. Okay? And what the people... And what is oftentimes mistaken whenever we read one of one of uh, whenever we read about one of Jesus's miracles is that the is that the people, as we will see, and I think sometimes us as well, oftentimes us as well, we get so wrapped up in the the miracle itself, as opposed to what the miracle or specifically who the miracle is pointing to. Okay, so if you keep your finger in John six, just talking about these about this theme of signs. And go not very far to John chapter, where was it? John chapter, oh drat, come on now, where's it, where'd it go? Hmm. Oh yeah, there, John chapter 2 verse 11, Jesus changes water into wine. And here we see the beginning of this theme that will become a recurring theme and really a theme that bookends John's gospel. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him, okay? Still keep your finger in John 6 because we're going to come back to that and go past John 6 to John chapter 20. verse 30. John chapter 20, verse 30. It just so happened to be uh, 31, just so happened to be uh, the verse that was preached on at my installation here. 
Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And here's where John gets to his final point. Remember that, that, that the people, we're just going to kind of talk about the people at the time that John is writing. The people at that time, again, they got so caught up in the miracles themselves that they really didn't, many of them, not all, but many of them got so wrapped up in the miracles themselves that they failed to realize the miracles are doing one thing and have one singular purpose, and that is to point to Jesus as the Messiah, going all the way back to Jeremiah as the righteous branch, okay? Um, So there we see this kind of this theme of signs. So now go back to John chapter 6. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. I mentioned it as I was reading this, but that's not a small tidbit. That's not just a throw-in by John. Remember that the Passover is the highest feast that the Jews have. It's the biggest deal, going all the way back to Exodus. Okay. Well, Jesus in the subsequent verses, as we know, will end up feeding 5,000 people. Well, what else did he do during the Passover feast? What else is he going to do? Communion, right? He's going to have the Lord's Supper. And as I was reading, actually listening to a commentary on this, the speaker I thought was right on when, when he said that um, Jesus is going to do something later on that is going to really make this miracle look like child's, child's play. Okay, What happens with the, the Last Supper where he gives of his body with what? Well, with bread. Okay, um, So uh, the fact that it's the Passover is not, uh, should not be lost on us. Verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And Philip sort of gives the answer that probably there are, um, uh, there are sort of Marys and there are Marthas, right? And uh, remember that Mary is the one who is sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha is the one who's busy in, in, in the kitchen getting stuff ready. Philip probably identifies, at least at this time, I mean, probably identifies more with the Marthas, okay? He's thinking very pragmatically, very practically. Philip, where are we going to get enough food? Well, eight months wages, which is a lot of money. I mean, it would not be enough bread for each one to have one bite. Another thing that uh, the commentary that I listened to today said that I, that I thought was really key in really um, opening up this text is that remember at this time that the people were living, the majority of the people were living hand to mouth every day, meaning they got up and they worked for what they were going to eat that day, and that cycle continued every single day of their lives. And so for uh, for Philip to see that there's eight to 9,000 people there, you couldn't even have enough. Eight months' wages would not even be enough to, for, for everyone to just have a single bite, to have a single morsel. Well, 
as I said, interestingly, in verse 8, John kind of uh, butts up Philip's answer with Andrew's answer, which is a little bit more helpful. Andrew then uh, comes up to Jesus and says, well, here, I found a boy, and he's got five small barley loaves and two fish. How far will they go among so many? I found out, too, that barley loaves were only made by those who were poor. And so this boy that Andrew finds, based off of that, is, is very, very poor. Usually, um, you would want bread to be made out of wheat, out of flour. Um, but the barley loaves were made by those who, again, were this hand-to-mouth kind of living every single day. And only two small, two, two small fish. Jesus says, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in in that place. Again, makes us think of Psalm 23. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. It's natural for us because I certainly wondered it and have wondered it very often. So what did that look like? What did the miracle itself look like? So every, every time, I mean, just they started giving out loaves, and they just the loaves were coming from somewhere. Um, this commentary that I listened to, um, I thought gave a really good example. It went back to, or, or um, he referred back to the time when Elijah met up with the widow at Zarephath. Do you guys kind of remember that story? Um, God tells Elijah to go to this widow because she will give him something to eat. Well, when Elijah gets there, the widow says, or he asks the widow for something to eat, and the widow says, Sir, in so many words, um, Sir, I only have enough for my son and I for one more meal, and then after this meal we're going to die. And Elijah tells her, you will be provided for. And I just want you to just please give me something to eat first, and then you and your son will have plenty of food uh, for which to eat. And a miracle happens there, because what happens is, is that she keeps going in for flour, and it never runs out. Um, that's, that's kind of essentially the same kind of thing that is happening here. God is providing. What did it look like, you know? Um, I really wish that John and some of the, the other gospel writers had gone into a little bit more detail on that, but maybe they, they couldn't. Maybe it was trying to, like, explaining the inexplainable. I don't know, but there was just this fish, and there was lots of fish happening, and there was lots of bread happening. So, um, okay, and then have the people sit, sit down. He distributed. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gather them and fill 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Remember, again, these are daily hand-to-mouth people. And for them to be given enough food that their bellies were so full that they couldn't possibly eat anymore, that, for many of them, that probably had never happened, ever. And Jesus, the Messiah, the Good Shepherd, the one that they had been following... Um, followed him, I mean, it was four miles across the lake. I think I read that in order to go around the lake, which is what the people had to do, they would have had to walk nine miles 
Um, and Jesus feeds them. Not only does he feed them, but he gives them more than, uh, more than they could possibly manage. There's other things, too. This, this text is, is just full of imagery going back to uh, Moses leading the people through the wilderness. Manna, um, uh, quail, okay, all of those, of those, of those things. Um, okay, now, what I think is the most important part of this text, and again, we have to make sure that we don't make the same mistake that the people at that time did, and that is to get so wrapped up in the miracle that we, fit, that we, forget, who the, the, we forget who the miracle points to. Verse 14, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Okay? They know that this is not just some ordinary dude. Not, because of, not only because of the feeding of the 5,000, 8 to 9,000 that, that just happened, but also because we know early on in verse 2 all these other miraculous signs that Jesus had been doing. They know that he's not just some ordinary guy. He is a prophet who has come into the world. But, verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. What did Jesus know? What did he know? Or what did he, what did he determine about the people? That they wanted him to, to be something, but what was it? Yep. But also, I think Yeah. Yeah. He says that later on. Yeah. Yeah. Keep doing these miracles. What you're looking for me, you're looking for more That's exactly right. They're they're wanting him to be a bread king. This guy gives us food, and not just food, but he gives us more than we could possibly want. And so they think that this is what the prophecies meant. They think that this is what uh, the prophet is supposed to do, is to take care of their physical needs. Yeah, yeah. They, that's exactly right. And they think that he is going to be, and we know this even from Palm, from, from Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. You lay palms down when a great military leader is returning home. Well, that's what they think that, they still thought at that time that that's who Jesus was. Um, so surely th- this is the prophet who was to come into the world, and then Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. That's not, obviously, Jesus knows that that's not why he came. He wasn't going to let them do that. Jesus was tempted, we know from Hebrews, uh, Jesus was tempted, tested in every way that we are. I think what, again, is worth noting, I don't know if, if you can do an entire sermon on it, but I think it's worth noting that even though John doesn't really make specific mention of it, you know that the human side of Jesus was probably tempted he didn't give in, obviously, but there was probably, you know, Satan was probably right there whispering in his ear, yeah, yeah just do it, do it, yeah, you know, you know be, be who it is that they want you to be. But Jesus knows that he has to be who they need, not who they want. Um, 
And yeah, they, they want him to be because they think, and, and part of it is, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to come down on the people too much, although some, because I, th- I think it's deserving, but I think any one of us probably would have, maybe to differing degrees, but I think any one of us would probably have the same thoughts that the people did. They just saw him make water into wine. Um, the disciples see him walking on water. People see the healing at the, at, at the pool. Obviously, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, yeah, and so they, they, they are seeing these signs. So, yeah, this guy's coming, and all of our physical needs are going to be met. We're going to be living high off the hog once again. But Jesus has a completely different... Um, agenda in mind. Is he going to take care of their physical needs? Yes, but remember that not every person in Jesus' time was healed. Okay. Um, is he going to take care of some of the people's physical needs? Yes. And we know that he does that, but the reason why he does that is to show them, I'm going to take, well, it's a great, he says it elsewhere. Um, he says, uh, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to, to his life? Look at the lilies of the, of the field. Look at the sparrows. Okay? They are all taken care of. How much more valuable are they? Meaning, I'm going to take care of the physical things. How much more will I take care of your spiritual wellness, of your soul? Okay? Um, yeah, so it, there's, there's a lot to unpack in this, in this feeding of of the 5,000, but I think the point is that Jesus comes and is not the person, is not the Messiah or the prophet that they think that he's going to be. Is he going to take care of their physical needs? Yes. But as a, as a medium for which to point them to himself, that he is the true Messiah who will then go to the cross and be crucified, thus taking care of their immediate need. Another really cool um, theme in this is that the people obviously cannot feed themselves. We, that's what the entire text is kind of based off of. But Jesus feeds them. If you look at the cross, we cannot pay the cost. Well, the people cannot pay eight months' wages to buy enough bread. We cannot pay the cost of our sin. And so Jesus pays that cost and gives overflowingly to us. It's pretty neat. Um, okay, questions or, or thoughts on the 5,000? Well, eight to nine. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all through there, he's getting signed. And I think 
doesn't somewhere here he, he says that he's no longer going to do these signs because he just comes to more healing. So this is yeah, I know what you're referring to. I don't quite remember, but I, yeah, I know what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and it's and so uh, in the same chapter, several verses after that, if you flip over to uh, six twenty-five. Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. What do you mean? Well, what do you mean, what do I mean? Did you not just see what I did? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, this, you know, it's neat. They say in verse 34, Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. They think he's talking about their physical needs, um, but rather he is talking about their... Um, it's not quite right to say their spiritual needs because that, I don't think that that encompasses everything. Um, he's going to take care of their most important needs, I think is probably the, the best way to say it. But as I told you, verse 36, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Um, you have seen me, the one who was to come, and still you're, you're focused on all, all of the wrong stuff. And like I said, I didn't go into it a lot, but there is a lot in this feeding of the 5,000 that harkens back to um, manna and quail. Um, if you go back to verse 9, oh no, sorry, uh, verse uh, 13, they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with a piece of the five barley loaves left over by those who, who had eaten. Remember that with the with the manna and the quail that God provides the people in the desert, they are to follow his orders specifically. And there are some times that they can keep some left over because it will stay. But there are some times that you can't keep what is left over because it's going to go bad. Um, but, with, but with Jesus, he is... When, when he gives... He gives over, overflowing. He gives more than, um, than, than we could ever possibly hope to imagine. Okay? All right, well, uh, that will conclude our Read the Readings for tonight. Thanks to all who came uh, to the sanctuary this evening and all who are listening on the podcast. Um, these will be the, the readings for Sunday, so hopefully this was helpful for you. Um, and uh, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Have a great night. We'll see everybody Sunday, if not before.